I'm a tough guy, and I've heard a lot of creepy stuff in my life, but there's one story that has truly stuck with me. Now, the story isn't mine, it belongs to one of my oldest friends. I'll do my best to tell it to you from his point of view, exactly the way he shared it with me. It was a dreary Thursday afternoon in the middle of fall, and me and the rest of my senior class were attending our college graduation ceremony. The ceremony was in the middle of campus, which felt like home to us after four long years of study. There was a shadow hanging over the triumph of graduation. Over the past few weeks, rumors had been spreading across campus, and all of them centered around the asylum located just a few miles from our small college town. I'd even heard the rumors firsthand, from a girl in my class whose brother was a policeman. She told me that she had overheard her brother talking on the phone about a serial killer who had escaped from the asylum. The killer was nicknamed the Reaper in the Mist because he held his victims captive in remote locations in the forest where nobody could hear them scream. Now, I was convinced that my classmate was just trying to scare me, but one detail stuck with me. She said the police were convinced that the Reaper had started hunting new victims and he was taking them to an abandoned shack in the woodlands on the outskirts of our town. I might not have believed that her story was entirely true, but I was intrigued enough to tell my three best friends. Then, we decided to do what any bored college boys would do, check it out for ourselves. We took my friend Richard's truck, packed with whatever weapons we could get our hands on, and the drone that I'd gotten for Christmas. The half-hour drive felt like we were setting off on an adventure, and we joked the whole way about how famous we'd be if we actually caught a killer. Once we'd parked on the outskirts of the forest, we sent the drone up like a scout and crowded around to watch the video feed. From above, the forest was incredibly dense. There was no way that we were going to spot a serial killer walking through the trees, and a rickety old shack would blend right in with the surrounding foliage. I tried to ignore the thought that the killer would probably see us, four loud college kids stomping through the woods, before we even got close to seeing him. We knew that we needed to cover more ground to make the most of the daylight, so we went against the advice of every horror movie I've ever watched and split up into two groups. Armed with walkie-talkies, I began to walk in one direction with my best friend Josh, while Richard and Dareman went in the opposite direction. We agreed that if we saw any sign of the killer's shack, we'd alert the other group on the walkie-talkies. As we walked, the tone of our conversation stayed lighthearted, but deep down, I think Josh and I both knew we'd gotten in too deep. We'd underestimated the nature surrounding us. The hills were steeper than we'd thought, the woods were denser than we'd expected, and the sun was dropping faster than our weather apps had suggested. The thick blanket of darkness around us seemed to amplify every sound. A broken twig sounded like a gunshot going off. A leaf falling sounded like somebody jumping out of the bushes to ambush us. We had just started joking around, making fun of each other for how jumpy we were getting, when we heard the scream. It cut through the night like a knife. I've heard foxes and mountain lions screaming before, but there was no way that this sound was coming from an animal. It was distant, but still sharp and full of complete agony. That's the only way to describe it. Whoever was screaming was feeling unimaginable pain, and they just kept screaming on and on and on. Josh and I instinctively pointed our flashlights in the direction of the scream, 
but it felt like the light only penetrated a few feet into the trees. We didn't have another choice. Our only way of finding out where that scream was coming from was to follow it. What if they're snares? Josh whispered. Maybe we're walking right into a trap. I knew he was right, and I did my best to scan the ground with my flashlight for anything suspicious. I was incredibly conscious of all the sound we were making each time we pushed a branch out of the way or stumbled on a tree root. It felt like the quieter I tried to be, the louder I was. Every few minutes, the screaming would begin again, guiding us in the right direction. I glanced over at Josh and saw that his face was tight, like he was imagining the person's pain. Just as I turned my gaze back to the forest in front of us, I saw it. The shack that I'd half believed wasn't even real. A shack with its lights on in the forest should have looked like a safe haven, but something about the building itself was sinister. I was fighting against every instinct telling me to run in the opposite direction. In fact, the only reason I didn't abandon my friends and run for my life was the hope that I'd be able to save whoever had let out that horrible scream. Josh elbowed me and whispered that we needed to call our friends and let them know what was going on. We'd been so distracted by those tortured screams that we'd completely forgotten about the walkie-talkies. I left Josh to pass on the message while I crept closer to the shack, trying to get a better look. From the angle I was standing at, it looked as if the shack only had one small window. Through it, I could see the shadowy shape of a person lying on the ground. It looked as if they had been tied to a chair while they were tortured, and during the beatings, the chair had been knocked over and they'd gone crashing to the floor with it. I crept back to Josh and told him what I'd seen. While we waited for Richard and Dareman to catch up with us, we decided to scout out the land around the shack, and before long, we came across a small wooden hatch covered with dead leaves. It was clear that it hadn't been opened in years, maybe even decades, but with two of us pulling on the latch, it swung open. From what I could make out with the beam of my flashlight, it looked like the hatch led down into an underground basement. A twig snapping nearby made me choke down a shout, but it was just Richard and Dareman finally arriving at the shack. The four of us agreed that Richard and Dareman would stand guard by the hatch, while Josh and I would climb down and try to make our way into the shack. We didn't know if the murderer was still inside the cabin, but we knew that we had to get the hostage out as soon as we could. From the way that their screams had turned into weak groans of pain, it sounded as if we didn't have much time left. The hatch was so narrow that I almost had to hold my breath to make my way down. Josh followed, and we found ourselves in an empty dirt basement. Around 10 feet away, there was a second set of stairs with a large wooden door at the top, but the door had been left open. I went up the stairs first, pausing every time I took a step and praying that the wood wouldn't creak. At the top of the staircase, a curved mirror had been mounted to the wall, allowing us to see past the basement door and into the shack. When I saw a flash of movement, I put my arm out, signaling for Josh to stop. A man dressed entirely in black was walking through the hallway, heading for the room that the hostage was kept in. This was our chance to catch him by surprise and save the victim's life. As I crept up the stairs, I was so full of adrenaline that I didn't even notice the tripwire. The toes of my boot connected with it at full force, and immediately, the blaring sound of an alarm began to echo off the walls of the basement. Obviously, this killer was even more prepared than we'd thought. I knew that there was no chance we would be able to overpower him with brute force. As soon as the alarm sounded, he had probably grabbed his weapon. 
In fact, he was most likely making his way down to the basement, ready to add two more victims to his collection. I grabbed Josh by the arm and pulled him with me as I ran back down the stairs and scrambled back up the hatch, scraping my elbows and knees in my desperation to get out of there. We almost collided with Richard and Derman on our way out, and dragged them with us into the tree line to hide. Our hasty escape had given us an advantage. By the time the killer came outside, we were completely blanketed by the darkness. With our flashlights turned off, we held our breath trying to disappear into the trees, hoping that we had managed to distract the killer from finishing off his victim. But we'd made one fatal error. We had forgotten about our theory that the killer had set up traps around the property, until Richard accidentally stepped on one. The rope snapped tight around his ankle and lifted him ten feet high into the air, suspending him upside down from the trees like a fly in a spider's web. The sound of the swishing rope was unmistakable, and I knew it would only take seconds for the killer to be alerted to Richard's location. Seconds. That was how long we had to act. There was no way for Richard to free himself, and we had no idea how to get him down from there without dropping him on his head. So the three of us came up with a different, riskier plan. We would alert the killer to our own location, hopefully luring him away from Richard, and then ambush him. What better way to lure a predator than pretending to be a victim in distress? Help! I screamed, trying to sound as scared as possible. It wasn't hard. I was more terrified than I'd ever been in my life. I'm stuck in a trap! Josh and Derman hid behind trees on either side of me, while I crumpled to the ground, pretending to be stuck in a snare. Hopefully, the killer didn't remember that he hadn't actually set a trap in this location. When I screamed for help a second time, an unfamiliar voice answered. Don't worry, the killer said, from around ten feet away. I'll get you out of there. His words might have been reassuring, but the tone of his voice sent shards of ice through my heart. It was the voice of a sociopath, without a shred of humanness. The killer stepped towards me, and Josh and Derriman launched themselves at him, while I quickly got to my feet and joined the fight, kneeing him in the crotch. He dropped the hunting knife that he was brandishing and crumpled to the ground, while the three of us struggled to restrain him. Derriman managed to get him in a headlock, while Josh and I twisted his arms behind his back. Now, we had one of our friends still suspended in the trees, and a murderer threatening to end our lives in a hundred painful different ways. Picking up the knife from the forest floor, I held it to the killer's throat as we marched him back to the shack. As we passed where Richard was stuck, I saw that he had managed to grab hold of one of the trees and maneuver himself into an upright position. He yelled out that we should take care of the killer and come back to free him later. Once we were inside, I used the knife to saw through the ropes tying the hostage to the chair. From what I could see of his face behind the bruising and swelling, he was a young man about the same age as us, and even though he was unconscious, he was still breathing. None of us had any idea what to do with the killer. So we simply restrained him in the same way he'd restrained his own victim. The rope scraps were long enough to tie his hands and feet together, and then to wrap around his waist and tie him to the chair. His eyes were full of hatred, but he didn't say a word. While Josh and Derman half-dragged the hostage out of the shack, I called to 911, hoping that there would somehow be reception all the way out here. On the second try, the call went through, and I managed to choke out our location and what we'd seen. After Josh found the release for the rope trap that Richard was hanging in, we helped him down, 
and sat there in complete silence waiting for the police to show up. I told myself that I was keeping watch to make sure that the killer didn't escape, but in reality, looking at the shack for too long made me uncomfortable. All I could manage was a quick glance every now and then. As soon as the police made it up the trail, with their powerful flashlights swinging through the trees, we pointed out the room where we'd left the killer tied up. I trailed behind as the officers entered the house, and then my heart stopped at the sight of a curtain swaying in the breeze from an open window. The killer was gone, and the window that he'd escaped through framed miles and miles of dense woodland. It was as if he'd vanished into thin air. The four of us wanted to stay and help with the search, but the cops weren't having any of it. One of them even escorted us back to our apartments on campus, telling us that we needed to lock the doors and stay inside while they tried to apprehend the killer. I sat up all night, checking the news obsessively for any updates. At 8am the following morning, the local police department finally released a statement about the incident, but it wasn't the news I'd hoped for. Armed officers and police dogs had searched every inch of the woodland with no sign of the killer until the killer scent trail abruptly ended at a 15-foot-wide ravine. There was no corpse at the base of the ravine, and it was too wide for a human to jump across. Despite police blockades at every road in and out of the forest, checking every car that went in or out, they had been unable to locate the killer, and they had no clues about where he could have gone. Somehow, even though I'd been anxiously waiting for an update on the case, the call from the police later that morning still startled me. It wasn't the news they had hoped for. They said that they wouldn't contact me again unless they somehow managed to track down and capture the killer. For the first few weeks, I was constantly expecting the phone to ring again. It never did. As the weeks turned into months, I found myself on the one-year anniversary of the incident, still wondering if they were close to finding the killer. I knew he was still out there. I could feel it, like a crawling sensation at the base of my spine. I could picture those dark, soulless eyes, watching his next victim from a distance. In my dreams, I heard the sound of his voice replying to me. Don't worry, I'll get you out of there. I can still remember the satisfaction in those words, knowing that he'd caught his next victim. On a pleasantly warm Saturday afternoon, my fiancé and I had a few weeks of paid time saved up. We were planning on flying over to North Carolina to visit her distant relatives. The airport had overbooked our flight, leaving us with a couple of hours to wait. So, we decided to go pick up some snacks, and, waiting in line for the checkout, I saw something that stopped me in my tracks. It was him. I may have only ever seen his face at night, and a year had passed since then, but I was convinced that even if a decade passed, I would still recognize him. He didn't see me, so I fumbled for my phone and snapped a few hasty pictures which I sent to the group chat with my college friends. I didn't give them any context. I knew they'd know why I sent that picture. I just needed the validation that I wasn't going crazy and hallucinating a serial killer in the middle of the supermarket. When I looked up from my phone, he was gone, swallowed up by the sea of people in the busy airport. By the time we had finished checking out and walked back to our gate, Richard, Josh, and Derriman had replied to my message. They all said the same thing. It's him. Now that I knew I wasn't being irrational, I called the police, telling them that I thought I'd seen an escaped serial killer in the airport. I'd noticed that the man was wheeling a small suitcase, so I let the operator know that it looked as if he was about to board a flight, and because he was in the same terminal as me, 
It seemed that he was also flying to North Carolina. After thanking me, the operator hung up. Within minutes, a message came over the intercom. We thank you for your patience. Due to security concerns, all flights are now suspended. Please remain calm. All of the flights leaving the airport that day were delayed. But when I pulled out my phone to check the flight times, my heart sank. The first flight to North Carolina, the one that my fiancé and I had originally been taking, had departed early. Something in my gut told me that there was no point in searching the airport for the Reaper in the Mist. He was already thousands of miles in the air, heading to his next hunting ground. After a second announcement, letting us know that all flights taking off today were cancelled, we decided to embark on the long drive to North Carolina instead of waiting to rebook. It was a quiet journey. I knew that my fiancé suspected I was just being paranoid, but I knew what I'd seen. The Reaper in the Mist was still at large, and for some reason, the paths of our lives had crossed over again. We drove through a downpour of rain and out the other side, and our entrance to North Carolina was shrouded in gray clouds in a sour mood. I was full of adrenaline, but there was no outlet for it. All I could do was keep my eyes on the road and try not to grip the steering wheel too tightly. As we passed Honeycutt Farm, I saw a bright flashing of lights in the distance along the route to the house where we were staying. Through the thick mist, it became clear that the lights were coming from four or five police cruisers pulled off the side of the road. It's probably just a robbery or something, my fiancé tried to reassure me. I wanted to believe her, but there was something about the location, the dismal weather, and the rising panic in my chest that made it impossible. Both of us were shaken after what had happened that morning, so we decided to pull over and ask the police what was going on. There were only two things that the cop was allowed to tell us. The first was that an escaped serial killer had flown into North Carolina and immediately abducted another victim. It had been too late to save her. Then, the cop leaned in and whispered the second piece of information. The police had given the killer a nickname. They said they called him the Reaper in the Mist. <laughs>